Hello, and welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 3, A Prelude to Empire. Prior to this episode, we've established what was happening in and around the Balkans when the Slavic and Proto-Bulgarian tribes migrated there in the 6th and 7th centuries, as well as the major debates centered around the ethnic origins of the Bulgarians. From that episode, we got an idea about where the Slavs and Proto-Bulgarians came from. So today, I'm finally going to talk about the migrations of these tribes into the Balkans and the establishment of the first Bulgarian Empire in the year 681. I want to begin by talking about the Slavs, because by the time the Proto-Bulgarians arrived in the region, they had already been established there for around 100 years. I mentioned in the last episode that the Slavs originated around the Pripet marshes in modern Ukraine and Belarus, and began to migrate in all directions in the 5th and 6th centuries. Of course, the groups which headed south are the most important to us. In the early 6th century, these southern Slavs lived at the border of the Byzantine Empire and conducted local raids across it. Because of their disunity and lack of organization, these raids were more of an annoyance than a serious threat. However, as was happening so often during this period, the movement of a single tribe was about to set off a chain reaction which would throw this status quo to the dog. In this case, that tribe was the Avars. The Avars were a Turkic group which came from the Central Asian steppe. Unlike the Slavs, they were highly organized and well-led. Justinian, the emperor of the Byzantines at the time, decided to use a classic tactic of the Byzantines and ally himself with the Avars in order to use them against other Turkic and Germanic tribes in the areas. While this tactic often resulted in the creation of a balance of power, and thereby a stable situation for the Byzantines, in this case, it backfired horribly. In the 560s, the Avars crushed their Germanic and Turkic rivals and conquered the Slavs north of the Danube to form a powerful federal state. Suddenly, the Avars went from being a tool of the Byzantines in their games of realpolitik to being a serious rival in the Balkans. Within a short period of time, the Avars were conducting raids all the way to the suburbs of Constantinople. To state the obvious, this was a disaster for the Byzantines. In their attempt to assert dominance, they had created a monster. While the Byzantines still maintained direct control over the Balkans, these raids were devastating to the economy and prestige of the empire. But why do we care about this? Because the movement of the Avars pushed the Slavs deep into the Balkans in two ways. First, many Slavs were fleeing the Avars, and second, many Slavs served as infantry in the Avar army. In these two ways, large numbers of Slavs settled throughout the Balkans. I mean, sure, plenty of people had traveled and settled through the Balkans before, but the Slavs make up the majority of the peninsula's population today. It is the Slavs who will become the defining group in the history of the region. That, in effect, is the role they continue to play today, and it's a role that began 
with these settlements. Now, the Slavs were markedly different from other tribes in this period, the major ones at least. Now, I mentioned that the Slavs were not very politically organized during their migration. This meant that the typical Byzantine tactics in dealing with incursions were useless. Without a leader and a clear political structure, there was no one to fight with, pay off, negotiate with, whatever. This meant that there was little the Byzantines could do to counteract these Slavic tribes. There was real irony here. In many ways, an organized tribe is much more dangerous than a disorganized tribe. But in the case of the Slavs, it was their very disunity which allowed them to migrate and settle unchecked by the power of Byzantium, a power made impotent by the peculiar organization and culture of these newcomers. So the Slavs loosely organized themselves into semi-independent tribes once they settled in the Balkans. On the one hand, they were not a real military threat to the empire, yet their presence was a real blow to the prestige of the empire. It had allowed them to settle and was completely incapable of pushing them back out. Just as in the Western Roman Empire, a vital element of its power was its prestige, the perception that the empire was permanent and would always strike back. Also, like in the Western Empire, once this illusion was destroyed, the power of the empire declined significantly. Every Slav in every village was a reminder of the empire's failure, a reminder of the empire's impotence. By the mid-7th century, urban centers in the Balkans were being depopulated. The new Slavic settlements around them had disrupted trade networks, along with the results of the explosive conquests of Islam in the eastern part of the empire. The chaos and bad economy of these times led to many locals fleeing into the mountains or simply leaving the region altogether. This urban decline is often viewed as one of the critical changes which led to the Hellenic culture of the peninsula becoming gradually more and more Slavic. This Hellenic imperial culture was so grounded in urban centers that their decline also led to a decline in the Greek language and culture, as well as an imperial control. While much of this process would be reversed in the southern Balkans, modern Greece, it would be more or less permanent in the rest of the peninsula. Again, the Slavs are beginning to define the Balkans of today, even in this early period. Okay, so this was the state of the Slavs when the Proto-Bulgarians arrived on the scene. They were nominally under Byzantine rule, but with little interaction with Constantinople. They lived mostly outside of major cities, and these cities were declining in wealth and power. In general, the Balkans were chaotic, and the Byzantine attempts to reassert their control were met with mixed success. The Proto-Bulgarians had previously been allied with the Avars. However, they took advantage of their weakness following a failed attempt on Constantinople to break away and establish a mixed ethnic confederation based around the North Caucasus and Ukrainian steppe north of the Sea of Azov. For reference, check out the map on the website page for this episode. Now, this state is commonly referred to as Old Great Bulgaria, and was led by Khan Kubrat. Now here, I want to make a quick aside about the title Khan. 
The term was used by most of the Turkic and Mongol tribes in and around the Great Eurasian Steppe. You probably know it best from the Mongols themselves. Now, without question, the Proto-Bulgarians came from somewhere in this steppe and certainly had a lot of cultural influence from these people. But whether or not they would have referred to their own leaders as Khan is a little unclear, actually. We have only one written source which uses this term to describe the Bulgarian leader, and it simply lists Khan amongst numerous other titles. However, I'm going to use this term simply to maintain clarity and consistency with other secondary sources. Also, I should point out that prior to their mixing with the Slavs, these early Bulgarians are referred to as Proto-Bulgarians. Okay, back to the main narrative. Now, this Proto-Bulgarian state was on good relations with the Byzantines, especially because the two states had no overlapping spheres of influence. The Proto-Bulgarians did not challenge Byzantine naval supremacy in the Black Sea, and both states were hostile to groups like the Avars. As a result of this, Kubrat likely spent part of his life living in Constantinople as either a hostage or a protected person, and even befriended the Byzantine emperor Heraclius. Now, I'm sure if the Byzantines could have known what the ancestors of Asparuch would do, he never would have left the city alive. But unfortunately for Byzantium, he did. Now, here I have to make another quick aside. In modern English, the term hostage has what we could call a purely negative connotation. But for much of human history, states would exchange noble hostages as part of an established peace. This meant both that the states would not attack each other, and so threaten the lives of these noble captives, but also that cultural and personal understanding would grow and develop between them. While in many cases this worked very well, one can also look to examples in both history, Attila the Hun, and fiction, Game of Thrones, to see that this can also backfire. So though Kubrat would likely have been a hostage in Byzantium, he would not have been some he would have been more like an honored guest than a prisoner. Now, there is a legend about Khan Kubrat, which is okay, probably not true, but is very famous in Bulgaria today and worth telling. The story is that on his deathbed, Kubrat called his sons into the room. He took a bundle of sticks and tried to break it. Of course, he fails. But then he takes each stick one by one and breaks them with his weak and dying hands. The message to his sons was clear. If they stayed united, then they would be invincible. Break apart, and they would be broken one by one. Now famously, this lesson was lost on his sons. Now there's also a contemporary joke, common in Bulgaria, coming from this story in which Kubrat calls his eldest son in, and again asks him to break the sticks. His son tries and tries before he finally breaks the bundle. Kubrat responds with something roughly translated as, Man, you're stupid. Okay, back to the story. Now in the 640s, the Khazars, yet another Turkic tribe building a confederated empire in Eurasian steppe, they, they really seem to be all the rage at this time, began putting pressure on the old great Bulgarian state, leading to its breaking apart following the death of Kubrat. You see how again and again the movements and the expansions of these different tribes constantly causes these huge chain reactions. One tribe moves another tribe moves another tribe. So, what happened to these sons 
after the death of Kubrat. Well, they, like the Slavs, spread out in all directions. One son, Kuber, led a small group of proto-Bulgarians along with a mix of Illyrians, Thracians, Franks, and possibly others into the central Balkans. His son, Kotrag, headed northeast to build a new state on the upper Volga River around the modern Russian city of Kazan. Alcek led his faction through northern Italy and fell under the control of a Byzantine governor in the region based in Ravenna. Finally, an unknown son led another faction to Pannonia, a Roman province made up of bits of modern Hungary, Austria, Serbia, Croatia, and others. This final group fell under the control of the Avars yet again. Check out the map of these migrations on the website. But the main body of the Proto-Bulgarians headed south along the Black Sea coast, straight to the heartland of the Byzantine Empire. These Proto-Bulgarians were led by the first true Khan of the Bulgarians, the first leader of a proper Bulgarian state, Khan Asparuch. He led his troops to cross the Danube. The Danube was their Rubicon, for it was when this line was crossed everything would change. Friendship would become hostility, peace, war. This was because while they remained on good terms, the Byzantines were not willing to allow the Bulgars to settle south of the Danube, and so sent two military forces to expel them. Their prestige was already severely damaged by the incursions of the Slavs and Avars. There was simply no way they could allow yet another tribe to settle on their territory. At this point, I re recommend the reference map of the route of the Byzantine army provided in the website page for this episode. So, it was the summer of 680, and around 10,000 Bulgarians had set up fortifications on Pous Island in the Danube Delta. It would have seemed logical for the Bulgarians to seek out dry, flat, and open land, where their superior cavalry could overwhelm or outflank the superior infantry of the Byzantines. But they knew the Byzantines were coming to destroy them, and therefore, they could adopt any position they wanted and simply wait for the attack. Because the Byzantines were in constant danger of a two-front war. Deployments of their elite armies were always operating on a time crunch. All the Bulgarians had to do was pick a spot and wait. So Asparuch settled on his position. With rivers on all sides but one, and that one side an awful marshland, the position seemed invincible to him. Theophanes the Confessor, writing in the late 8th century, explained, quote, The Emperor Constantine was galled to learn that a foul, unclean tribe was living between the Danube and the Ogolos, and that it had sallied forth to ravage the land near the Danube, that is, the land which is now ruled by Bulgars, but was then held by Christians. He ordered all the thematic armies to cross over into Thrace, equipped as an expeditionary force, and moved against the Bulgarians by land and sea. The Byzantine army of 25,000 elite soldiers progressed onward into battle, onward into the delta, and onward towards this new enemy, so recently a friend. This army decided to play it safe, to utilize the unique advantages of the Byzantine Empire to bring about a safe victory. 
The Empire was in no mood and no position for whiskey strategies. So the army followed the Black Sea coast. As I mentioned, the Byzantines were unchallenged in the Black Sea, and so this made perfect sense. It allowed the army to be easily supplied and for the protection of at least one flank at all times. The strategy was sound, but much like the strategy vis-a-vis the Avars, it would prove a disaster. By the time the Byzantines reached the Bulgarian position, the supply network upon which they had placed their hopes was looking strained. Deep in the Danube Delta, hidden in a maze of channels, rivers, and marshes, the ships were simply too far away to effectively resupply the army. To the soldiers, it must have felt like the end of the earth, there on that marshy island. But the Byzantines were prepared. They were a professional force with experience in siege warfare. They came with ladders and rams and all usual equipment. But this was far from normal terrain for them. These were marshes, wet, muddy marshes. There was simply no way to set up a battle line and coordinate an attack when your soldiers are trudging through the mud and around numerous trees. There's no good way to get rams and ladders set up on that kind of soft ground. And there was no time to form a plan or get the Bulgarians to move to a new position. Time was simply never on the side of the Byzantines. So, they set up a siege and weathered frequent tactical strikes by the Bulgarians. After four days of misery in those marshes, the Byzantine Emperor Constantine IV began experiencing leg pain from his gout and left to rest and recover near the modern peninsula of Pomorie on the Black Sea. So the army was left in the marsh, alone facing the rampart. But the soldiers saw their emperor's action as desertion, as a sign of fear, as a sign of weakness. Rumors spread of his flight and their morale plummeted. Every attack saw more deaths, more men falling on the Bulgarian ramparts like water, more rams and ladders being lost to the mud. Eventually the battle turned into a rout as the Byzantine army gave up its attack and fled back southwards towards the Odysseus. It was at this point that the Bulgarians pursued, hunting down and destroying the fleeing soldiers. Despite facing a Byzantine force several times larger than themselves, the Bulgarians turned what the Byzantines thought would be an easy victory into an utter rout, with the Byzantines suffering heavy casualties. So the Byzantines were humiliated again. The Bulgarians swept south through Dobruja and into the plains south of the Danube. This land was now theirs, and there was no one to challenge them. The Byzantine Emperor Constantine IV, realizing the situation was hopeless, signed a peace treaty with Asperuch in 681. The Byzantines relinquished all the territory the Bulgarians now controlled, mostly the plains north and south of the Danube. See the online map for reference. In addition, the Byzantines agreed to pay a humiliating annual tribute to the new state. Constantine IV would never bring himself to fight another war. This was unprecedented for the Byzantines. I mean, sure, other tribes had run amok through the Balkans, but the empire had never given up its nominal control of the region. The empire had never officially recognized a quote-unquote barbarian state 
in Eastern Europe. The news shocked its contemporaries. And thus, the first state of today's Europe was finally established. If you look at the map of Europe in 681, you will see only one country whose name remains there today, that of Bulgaria. The crushing defeat of the Byzantines at Angala had led to the establishment of a new state whose history would be intertwined with that of Byzantium for hundreds of years. Bulgaria had arrived. The capital was established at Pliska, and the new state set about addressing the incredible challenges which faced it. Victory and legitimacy had been achieved, but that was only the beginning. The new state had unclear borders, an incredibly diverse population, and enemies on all sides. I want to thank you for listening. This podcast is produced by Martin Christoph. The audio engineer and composer of our theme music is Teddy Raven. And the story is written by me, Eric Halsey. Help us spread the word by liking us on Facebook, writing a review on iTunes, or tweeting about us. Check out our website at bghistorypodcast.com, where you can find useful resources that come along with each episode. Now, if you think we're doing a great job with the podcast, we've still got that nice donate button. Clicking it really gives us a lot of encouragement. On that note, I'd like to thank our very first donator, Rosa. Thanks, Rosa, for your generosity. It really meant a lot to us. All right, so I hope everyone has a happy holidays and a great new year. So until next time, Uspech, or in English, good luck.